You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we are, so you need a Bible in front of you and on your lap there if you can. If you need a Bible, um, if you look under your seats, maybe every three or four seats, something like that has one. So feel free to, to if you don't have a Bible, take that one. It's yours now. And so we'd love to have um, a Bible open for you. 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And we've got a, a, a rich section of God's Word this morning, so it's, it's a good one. Okay, so let's, let's start here. Uh, <clears throat> do you ever feel like you might be losing your mind? You ever had that moment where, where you, would, you would swear that you might be the most forgetful person on the planet? Okay, I, I have those moments. It seems like there are some days I could be the king of forgetfulness. Um, and I'll just give you one illustration of this this last week. Um, and this, this happened, this was a, a problem between me and my wallet. I don't know if you ever have those problems. And so my, my problem starts with I never have my wallet in my pocket. I never wear it. And so it's always in a bag, on a dashboard, in a glove compartment, in a drawer. It's always someplace. It's hard to remember where it is. And so on Thursday morning, I left the house to go to a, a, a meeting. And halfway to the meeting, I remember, and I'm buying coffee at the meeting. I remember I forgot my wallet. So I call her on the phone, verify, yep, it's on the kitchen table, right where I left it. Um, and I, I tell her that, okay, after this meeting, I've got a lunch appointment, and that was supposed to be on me too. I'm going to go back and get my wallet and then go to the lunch meeting. Well, halfway to the lunch meeting, I remember, I forgot to go back and get the wallet that I'd already forgotten. <laughs> I mean, you ever had moments like that where it just goes really bad? Where I mean, our, our mind just, it just, it doesn't get all that it's supposed to get on that day. And, and here's the point in all that is that the sharpest of us in here, I mean, you that's got your, your, Palm Pilot, all that stuff, categorize all that. The sharpest of us in here have leaky minds, don't we? I mean, the sharpest of us in here have minds that we, we would swear we would never forget that. That joke. You remember that joke that you would, you would swear you're going to remember for the rest of your life and you can't repeat it in the next conversation? How about this one if you're a parent in here? The Christmas present that you hid from your kid and then you can't find it? <laughs> See, I mean, the point is we all have leaky minds. Every one of us in here have minds that, that, that we would think that, that's a steel trap going to fit in there forever and it just happens to disappear. Okay, now it's not a big deal when it's a wallet on a Thursday. You can recover from that. But, but when we forget the most important things, namely God and who we are and what we have through, through Christ, when we forget those things, the most important things, it becomes a disastrous thing. Okay, now that fact right there, that when we lose sight of and forget the most important things, that it becomes a disastrous thing, that fact is underlined throughout most of the New Testament. When you look at what the New Testament, primarily like the epistles and the letters, what they're trying to do, what these authors are trying to do for their people, they are trying to, to get Christians to remember what they have already told them. Like most of the epistles aren't new stuff. It's that they've already told them. They're just trying to remind them of these things. So let me give you a couple examples of this. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul starts out that chapter and he says this to the church in Corinth, Christians. He says, okay, I, I need to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I already preached to you, which you received and in which you now stand. I need to go back and remind you of these things because I know that your mind is leaky. So, so it's going to require us periodically going over and getting a refill of what I've already spoken, what you've already received, what I've already told you. We're going to have to go back over. I'm going to have to remind you of these things. Um, and you see this all throughout the New Testament in Ephesians. We preached through the book of Ephesians about a year ago. And uh, we highlighted the fact that in the first three chapters of Ephesians, it's full of indicative statements of fact about what God has done for you and to you through Jesus, through the gospel. 
It's full of statements of facts about these declarations of what God has done for you, who you are in Christ, all of that. And there's only one command in the first three chapters. So in, in the first half of the book, one command. You remember what the command is? To remember. The, the only command in the first three chapters is for you to remember all of these statements of fact about what God has done for you and to you through Jesus. Command to remember. So, so Paul, Paul is aware of you have, I have, we have leaky minds. We all do that. And, okay, so Paul is um, talking to his son in the faith, Timothy, who's a pastor of the church in Ephesus. And, and listen to what Paul says to his son in the faith. Pastor, Ephesus, Timothy. He says this. For this reason, I what? I remind you. This is 2 Timothy 1.6. I remind you. Okay, what am I going to remind you of? To fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. He knows that Timothy's got a leaky mind, just like you've got a leaky mind, just like I do. That, that, that Timothy has, a, he has to be reminded of these things. If he's not reminded of these things, he's going to grow forgetful of these things. And you see this play out in, in first and second Peter. Now listen to how Peter describes what one of his goals in life, like what Peter's life is about doing, what he's giving his life for. This is going to be second uh, Peter 2 through uh, 13. He says this, I think it is right as long as I am in this body. In other words, as long as I'm alive, I think it's right. This is a good thing, an honorable thing. I think it's right to stir you up how? How do I stir you up? How do I get your affection stirred up for God? How, how do I kind of s- stir the pot of your desire for God? How, how do I do that? By way of reminder. So, so my, I'm giving my life to stir you up, and I'm doing that by reminding you of these basic things, these, these, these things are on the, the front end of what God has done for you and to you. In 2 Peter 3, 1, he gives the purpose for both 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Both of his letters, he gives the purpose for them. Like, why is he writing these letters? He says this in in 2 Peter 3, 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, in both of them. The first one and the second one, this is what I'm doing. I'm stirring up a sincere mind. Your sincere mind, how? By way of reminder. Okay, so I just want to help you see this, that the New Testament is all about reminding Christians of what they have and what they are, because here's what the New Testament knows, all these authors knows, that you, you have this tendency toward identity amnesia, forgetting who you are, what you have, that, that your mind's leaky, that, that it's like wet concrete. It's there one moment and you just a, one brush across it and it's gone. So so we're prone to identity amnesia. And they also know this, and this is why it gets to be disastrous, that that whenever we have identity amnesia, identity amnesia always leads to, to steal the words of Paul Tripp, identity replacement. See, see, when we forget who God has made us, what we're created for, who we are in in Jesus, who we are because of what God has done for us through the cross, when we forget that, when we forget forget this God-given identity, the only God can give to us, when we forget that, identity amnesia, we instantly go for identity replacement. We instantly start looking for our identity in all of God's gifts. So so now when we forget who we are in God, we start to look for our identity in, in our work. We, we start to look for our identity in our family, in, in our marriage, in, in a spouse, in a kid. We, we start to look at our identity in a bank account. We, we start to run to all these replacements. This is why it's so damaging and so dangerous to forget. Okay, now, now here's what Peter is about to do in these couple of verses, specifically verse 9 and 10. He is going to give you a gospel-packed two verses as a way of reminding you of all of your gospel benefits of who you are and what you have because of the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Jesus. What, what you have, what you are. He's going to remind you. It's a, it's a gospel-packed two verses grounding the people of God in their identity. So let's read it together here. Second Peter 
Chapter two, verse nine goes like this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are, the, are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, so let's just start with the first two, two words there. He says, but you. Okay, now that but you is in direct contrast to the other people in verse 8. In verse 8, you have this idea of, of unbelievers, this idea of people who don't believe in Jesus. Jesus is repulsive to them. They don't like Jesus. He, he's a stone of stumbling, not the cornerstone, but the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense for them. So, so those people, people who don't believe in Jesus, this is in contrast. He's saying, we're not talking about these people. We're talking about but you, but, but you who ha- have surrendered to and are savoring Jesus, trusted in and treasured Jesus, who have put your faith in, your belief in Jesus. It's but you. It's these people that he is saying this applies to. It's these people, the people of God, that he is saying this is your identity. This isn't for everyone. This is for the people of God. So here's what he's going to do in this passage. He's going to give the identity to, he's going to kind of lay out what what the identity is of the people of God. So so he uses four phrases here. The people of God, their identity, four four phrases. Here's how he starts. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race. So, so first off, he says, you, here, here's identity for you, believer. You're, you're a chosen race. That's what you are. Hear, hear that. You're, you're a chosen race. That, that for some reason that w- we'll never know, God has set his affection on you. Hear that. For some reason that we will never know that he, he has looked at you and he has set his love, his affection, his desire on you. Isn't that amazing to think about? For some unknown reason, God, God has set his affection on you. Okay, now this, this is really humbling. Because, because listen to what it does not say. It does not say that you are a choice people. It says you're a chosen people. Not choice. Okay, cho- choice means that you've actually got something to offer in this thing. Cho- choice means there's something in you that would maybe prompt the heart of God to, to, to go after you and to pursue you and to set his affection on you. But he doesn't say choice. He just says chosen. Okay, now I, I want to give you the background in Deuteronomy chapter 7 of where this comes from. So, so listen to this background in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It says this in verse 6. And it's going to be on the screen for you. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. Okay, that's, that's pronounced the people of Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now look at the reason for that. It's not because they're choice. There's, there's nothing in them that they offer to God. Listen to what he says in verse seven. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. It wasn't because, wasn't because you offered God something here for you were the fewest of all people. And look at verse eight. It's this neat little circular logic here. He's saying that God has set his love on you. Why? Verse eight, because, because the Lord loves you. That the Lord set his love on you. Why? Because, because he loves you. See, there's nothing to do about the people of Israel being choice. That they're not a choice people. They are few in number. If God was looking to try to draft the team that would be the best kind of people to surround him with, he wouldn't have picked them. I mean, if you read Exodus, here's what, you're gonna, here's what you would come about saying or come out of that saying. Reading Exodus, looking at the people of Israel. If you were God and those were your people, you would kill those people. Right? I mean, they are a murmuring people, a complaining people. They're not the people you want to draft. But here's the amazing thing about the Bible and about God and about, and about grace. First um, Corinthians says that he chooses the weak to shame the strong. He goes with the foolish to shame the wise. 
That there's nothing in them that is choice. But he has set his love and his affection on them. And Peter is pulling that imagery out of Deuteronomy 7. And he is saying, listen, Christians, church, you are God's chosen people. He has set his love on you. I think some of us just need to hear this this morning. God loves you. If you're a Christian in the room, God has set his love on you in a special way. God loves you. Can you hear that this morning? Can you hear God whispering that to you today? God loves you. He loves you. See, this is one of the the primary things that separate how Christians view God and every other religion views God. See, every other religion goes like this. You need to become a choice enough people to work your way to God. And Christianity is the one thing that says you are never going to be a choice people. But God, in his grace, comes after people who aren't choice. That's what it's saying to you. I mean, this is a view of God that is showing you that this is what grace is. It's it's humbling grace. It's grace that says you can't earn it, that that you don't deserve it, that you can never do enough good works, you can never perform well enough, but in his grace, he has come after you anyway, that you are not choice people, but God has set his love on you. See, this typically gets thrown out in the the, kind of the, the winds of great controversy and debate, but that is not the context in 1 Peter. The context in 1 Peter is Christians. Those of you who are maybe suffering, troubled, discouraged, you need to hear this. Those of you who are bruised and just been in battles all week long, all year long, all of your life long, you need to hear this. God has set his love on you. That God really loves you. I mean, it's an amazing gospel privilege to be able to look at God and say, for some unknown reason, God has set his love on them. So Peter is reminding them, here's who you are. This is gospel identity for you. You are a chosen race. But, but then he goes on. He's got, got more to say here. He says, you are a chosen race. And then he says this, a royal priesthood. You see that? He's saying, this is gospel identity for you. You're not just a chosen race. There's more to this identity. You are a royal priesthood. Now, now what does a priest do? If you cut it to its core, a priest is a person who has access to God. They are a person who gets the ear of God, the face of God, the presence of God. That's what they are. Okay, now now Peter is pulling out Old Testament imagery here. So if you track back through the Old Testament, here's what you're going to see. That there was a temple and a tabernacle and God's presence dwelt most tangibly there. And, And even more specifically within the temple, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. One room separated by a curtain that a priest could go in one time a year on the Day of Atonement. to to make sacrifices for the people. So he could go into that holy of holies where the presence of God most tangibly was one time a year, right? This is the picture of of priesthood in the Old Testament, that they would get the face of God, the presence of God. They were the people who had the ear of God. Okay, now now think about for the rest of the people of Israel. Um, If you start reading through the Old Testament, most of them had a relatively impersonal relationship with God. That they had to live vicariously through the priests who had, who had the presence of God, who had the ear of God, who, who could get inside with God. So, so you had the people of Israel, they're depending on priests to go before them, to make sacrifices for them, to get the ear of God for them, and to come back and communicate for them. Okay, this is what a priest was in the Old Testament. Okay, and God is saying, listen to what Peter is saying here. He is saying, you see that imagery? They, they get the presence of God, they get the ear of God. Christian, he's pulling it out of the Old Testament, he's saying, Christian, that, that, that's who you are. I mean, is that not an unbelievable gospel privilege 
that, that we are now people who get the full presence of God. Do you remember what happened in uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, where Jesus has just died on the cross. He's just said it's finished and an earthquake erupts and the temple is torn in two. And then it says that the curtain in the temple that separated the holy from holies, do you remember what happens there? The curtain is torn in two. And what is he saying? He's saying that because of Jesus, his, his death, burial, and resurrection, now as a Christian, that, that temple is torn. You no longer have to, to have a priest kind of go in between you and God. You no longer have to live vicariously through other people, that you can actually go to God on your own, that you as a Christian can, can go to God and get God. See, every other um, religion has, has this kind of hierarchy to who gets close to God. And, and Christianity is saying, no, there, there's no hierarchy. That, that if you're a Christian, you, you get the presence of God. You get the ear of God. You're a people now, in the words of Hebrews 4.16, that you can approach the throne of grace boldly, knowing that you can find grace and mercy there in your time of need. That's you. That's a gospel privilege for you because of the work of Jesus for you, that that you are a priest. Okay, now I think one of the most tragic chapters and really few chapters in the Bible is Exodus um, chapter 19. In Exodus 19, God makes this pronouncement and really this invitation to the people of Israel. And and listen to what he says to them in Exodus 19. This is verse 5 and 6. He says, you shall be my treasured possession. Can I use some of the same language? You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And listen to what he says in verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's saying, listen, people of Israel, you can be to me a kingdom of priests. You don't have to depend on other people. You can come straight to me. You can get my ear. You can get my presence. You can get my face. A kingdom of priests. But you know what they did kind of in the next two chapters in Exodus? Starting in verse nine, or chapter 19. Um, they, they looked at Moses and they looked at God and said, um, I think it feels a little safer to stay down here. So Moses, why don't you be our priest and, and you go up and, and you meet with God and you get the goods from God and then you come down and you let us know what God says. So, so you go up the mountain, right? we'll be down here, you go up the mountain, and then you come down and deliver the goods to us. Did you see what's happening? See, in, in that moment, rather than becoming a kingdom of priests, they became a kingdom with priests. To, to where now they're, they're living vicariously through a, a group of people, a group of priests that kind of get the ear of God, get the presence of God. Okay, now let's just stop and apply this real quick to our kind of cultural climate of Christianity. In Peter, God is saying, you are a kingdom of priests. But can I just tell you what, what is so rampant in church world is to just instantly revert back to a kingdom with priests. And, and here's how it works. Um, we live in a day and an age where you can download a pajillion podcast. Um, you've got more good books written, good books, books you should read, good books written about Christianity and about God and about grace and about the gospel than you can shake a stick at. I mean, you, you've got books everywhere. You, you, you've got your favorite preachers that you can go listen to. You've got all of those things. And listen, it's a blessing and a curse. Here, here's the blessing, that they are good things. That you, I, I'd encourage you to, to get good people on your podcast and read good books. But, but here's the curse in it. That the curse is, is that we have a, a church culture who has reverted back to saying, um, okay, so it sounds like it's a little bit scary to go up and, and get God. So, so why don't you podcast person? Why don't you favorite preacher? Why don't you favorite author? Why don't you go and approach the throne of grace boldly? And then you come back and you let us know what, what you find there. See, see, we've got a whole group of people that, that have just become a kingdom with priests. That, that we look at our guys and we say, you, you go get the goods and then you bring them back. And listen, Peter is saying, you don't need to do that. That, that you're a priest. You, you don't have to go with a stand between. You don't have to depend on a podcast to get you God. 
You don't have to present, depend on a sermon to get you God. That, that you're a priest, that you can go and get God. Hebrews 4.16, 4, 4, you, you can approach the throne of grace boldly. You can. Not just me, you. And, and here's why this is so important. Can I just give some gravity to this? There's going to be a day, um, and because we live in America, for most of us, it's going to be in a hospital where you wake up and it's 3 a.m. and your eyes just come bright awake. And you realize in that moment that your favorite podcast guy isn't there playing. You don't have your stack of authors that you're reading through. Your, your preacher isn't there. It, it is you and it is God. And it, it feels difficult to breathe in that moment knowing that, that your last breaths are on the way. And can I just tell you in that moment, you don't want to be depending on a God that I know, on a God that your podcast dude knows. You don't want to be depending on a God that your favorite author knows. You want your hope to be in a God that you know, right? And so see, you see what sacrifice when you become a kingdom with priest? You, you miss that. You start living vicariously through a group of people. And, and Peter's saying, listen, you don't have to live vicariously through them. You can be a people who know God, who get the presence of God, the ear of God, the face of God. He says you're a kingdom of priests. You're, you're a royal priesthood. He's got a couple more to say here. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And then he says this, you're a holy nation. You see that? You're a holy nation. I, I think it's interesting that Peter is saying that when you become a Christian, you've trusted and treasured Jesus. You've surrendered your life to him. You're savoring Jesus. When that, when that happens and you're saved, when God rescues and redeems you, the moment that happens that you become a nation, you, you become a, a, a people, you become a race. Isn't, isn't that interesting? That you become this group of people that have this common identity that you have been delivered out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. That you have this common identity of saved by the grace of God. You have this common identity that develops. Okay, now, now look around at the world at how people fundamentally identify themselves. And here's what you see. If you just start asking people, wh- who are they? They instantly go to things like this, country. I'm an American. They instantly go to things like this, um, color. I, I am this color, white, black, brown, what, whatever it is. I, I'm this. They, they go to, uh, maybe it's class. I am poor. I am rich. They, they go to, maybe it's commonalities. These are things that I like to do. Okay, and Peter is saying, underneath every one of these ways that the, that the world divides people, underneath every one of those ways, there is a fundamentally new way to look at yourself if you're a Christian. That you are first and foremost saved by the grace of God. You're first and foremost Christian. So before you're American, your allegiance is Christian. Your identity is Christian. But before you're a color, your, your identity is Christian. But before you're a class of people, your identity is Christian. But before you would identify yourself with a hobby or something you're interested in, your identity is Christian. See, so he's saying that your fundamental identity in life is Christian. And think about the result of this. Because of that, here's what happens on Sunday mornings like this. People who are rich and people who are poor come into a place like this, worship God together and serve one another. Uh, people who are white and people who are black and people who are brown come into places like this, worship God and serve one another. Pe- people who ha- have varying interests. If you just look, looked around this room at the things people were interested in, other than this, there would be no other reason for your lives to ever cross. But you know what, what God does? He, he, because we're saved by grace, we get to come together like this, varying interests, and we get to worship together and serve one another. So this is the result of this fundamental identity that God has given you as a Christian. That you are a holy nation. And so let me just ask you, are, are you living in that fundamental identity of, of I am first and foremost, fundamentally, I am Christian, saved by the grace of God. That's, that's what I am. See, see, here's how you know that's happening. It is when that's happening, your, your close friends, 
no longer all look like you, dress like you, talk like you, believe like you, are interested in the same things as you, in the same stage of life as you. See, it's no longer like that. The things that would join typically people in the world, you're joined by something different. So now you've got people in your life that don't look like you, don't dress like you, don't, don't talk like you, don't anything like you. This is how you know if that's working its way into your life. And can I just say this as a church family, that we need to be very careful in allowing things that divide the world, class, country, commonalities, those that color, those things to divide people in the church. That we are fundamentally Christian, fundamentally saved by grace. Okay, let me press on this. because I think this passage brings this, this to the surface. Um, we, we live in a culture, <clears throat> and by the way, I hope that the next few minutes prove to be very fruitful for you and very convicting and might lead us to some good repentance in the room. We, we live in a culture that is marked by individualism. It's one of the defining marks of American culture. And, and sadly, that, that is one of the uh, defining yet unbiblical marks of the American church. That, that people all across churches just like this have a very privatized and personal faith. That, that everything is, is kind of me and my, my little crew here and, and not, not other people. So, so we have this individualized, privatized view of, of how we relate to God. And can I just tell you that is not the view of the New Testament? It is not the view of the New Testament that you have a privatized faith. That is not how this thing plays out. Now, we could go forever on this, throwing up some, some passages, but, but just look at the words that Peter uses in verse 9. He uses words like a people, like a priesthood. Um, you, you get the picture here, right? Uh, like a, a nation, so you, a, a race. See, he, he doesn't use words like you're a person. It's, no, it's you're a people. See, it, it, there's a communal aspect to what it means to live with and for Jesus. That as soon as God saves you, you are grafted into the family of God, to use Paul's imagery for the church. That you're grafted in. Like when, when you become a Christian, you're automatically a part of a people who are living together with God and for God. Could you, do you see the picture there? See, the, the, if, if your view of God is privatized, it will make it impossible for you to know and experience all of God. There will all be, always be things that you're missing. You're always going to miss out on parts of your life that could be more fruitful and more faithful and more usable to God if your life is privatized. But see, this is the normal way for people to view what's happening in here right now. They view it like a restaurant. You know, okay, picture a restaurant scene. What happens in a restaurant? People who are not connected, generally unconnected people come into a place because they're coming to, to consume something. They're coming because they've got a need they want met. So they come into a restaurant, they eat that they enjoy it, and then they, they, they run off. They go back to their privatized life. And that is not the way the church is supposed to be. That when you look around this room, you're not supposed to have an, a disconnected view of that. That you're supposed to have a very connected view of that. When, when you look across this room, that you are connected by the sheer grace of God that was unmerited and bestowed on you and them. So you're connected by that. And so now we don't leave and go back to a privatized life. Now we leave and we scatter with one another as we're living on the mission of God together. Really, this is an issue of community. Peter is saying that when God saves you, you can become naturally a part of the community of God. So, so let me just kind of apply that specifically to our situation. That means if you're a part of Stonegate, that there's probably two things that need to be pressed on. One is that you're actually in a home group, living with a group of people. So, so you're in, like you, you, people, you're, you're around people. So that would be step one, in a home group. That, that's where we have the atmosphere for good community to develop. Here's step two, though. It's not just going to a home group. It's actually being known in your home group. I mean, you, you know that you can go to a home group for the rest of your life and never be in good community, right? That, that if you're going to go to a home group, 
Being in good community means that you start to open up your life where people actually know you. So maybe I could ask this question. Do people in this room at this church, do they, do they know you? I mean, do they, they, they know you? What you struggle with, where unbelief lies, where idolatry is in you, do, do they know you? And see, to, to be 99% known and 1% unknown, listen to this, is to be unknown. To be 99% known and 1% unknown is to be unknown. That 1% is the 1% that will kill you. So, so we're, we're saying that part of what it means here that you're people, that you're a race, that you're a holy nation, that, that means that you are living in community with people who know you. So, so is that happening? If not, this would be a great morning to repent of just an unbiblical belief in self-sufficiency and independence and a privatized faith, to repent of that and to, to make a leap toward and movement toward a home group. Okay, so, so he's got one more here for us. Number four. He says, but you are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then he says, a people for God's own possession. Do you see that? That you're a people for God's own possession. And that phrase, um, got essentially that own possession kind of type phraseology, it's kind of difficult to translate. Essentially, it means, though, that you're his treasured possession. That we, as the people of God, are his treasured possession. This is Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is Exodus 19. That, that you are God's treasured possession. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you have anything in your life that you would look at and say, that is irreplaceable? I, I cannot replace that thing. Like if you went home today and your house was on fire, you would really contemplate going inside, risking your life to make sure you got that out. Actually, you would go inside. You have anything like that? That, that you would risk life and limb. That, that it's just irreplaceable. God's saying, that, that's what you are to me. Christian. Those who have trusted and treasured Jesus, put your faith and belief in you. You're, you're my treasured possession. Can you hear that this morning? That, that you may have no earthly accomplishments, but God is looking at you and saying, you are my treasured possession. Your, your kids may fall apart. You are my treasured possession. Your family may fall apart. You are my treasured possession. Your business may fall apart. You're my treasured possession. Can you hear that this morning? God's saying that to you? That the Christian, that you're, you're my treasured possession. I, I love you like that. And if you look at this passage, I'm just gonna run through these really quickly. He, he gives three ways that he makes us his people in this. Um, if you look at the end of verse 9 and through verse 10, just three quick ways that, that he makes us his people. He says this first, in the, the end of verse 9, he says that God called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That God has called you out of darkness. See, I mean, that's a humbling thing to know. There was a point before you were a Christian, before you believed in God, trusted and treasured God, before that happened, there was a point that, that you were in the dark, that you would have thought you would have known everything you needed for life, but you didn't. You're in the dark. You didn't know these things about God. You were blinded to how, how beautiful Jesus is and how bright grace is. You're blinded to those things. Not only could you not see him, but you're kind of repulsed by him. You didn't really like him. See, this is what it means to be in darkness. But there was a, a point, much like um, Paul in Acts chapter 9, where God confronts you in such a way that the scales fall off and you start to see God in a completely new light. That Jesus appears beautiful, lovely, attractive to you. And you ran after him. That he pulled you out of darkness and placed you in the light. But, but he says another one. Look at verse 10. That once you were not my people, but now you are God's people. That when you become a Christian, that the God bestows on you all of the benefits of being his child, that he makes you a son or a daughter if you're a Christian. Isn't that something to think about? As a Christian, you're a son or daughter of God. All of the king's resources, 
all the king's benefits, all the king's power is leveraged on your behalf. That you become the people of God. But he's got one more. He says, but once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, what it means to be a, a treasured possession of God and a people of God, it, it means that, that you have received mercy. If you want to know a fund, like the reason that, that you are a child of God or a, a son or a daughter of God, if you want to know the reason for that on a fundamental, if you want to know the reason, here it is. God has shown mercy to you. You didn't deserve it. He has shown mercy to you. He has lavished grace on you. It's unmerited. You can never work for it. You can never earn it. You can never perform. But he just showered mercy on you. That's what it means to be his treasured possession. That you've received mercy. Okay, now I want you to look at verse uh, 9. And we're going to finish with this. We're going to land the plane here. He said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That is identity. Okay, that's all identity language. That, that is who you are and what you have because of what Jesus has done for you. All identity. But watch what happens. Watch what flows from identity. From identity, you have purpose that comes out. Here it goes. It says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So he not only gives you the identity of the people of God, he also on this side gives you the purpose of it. He is saying that out of identity, when you get identity down, when you start to live in this identity, when you stop forgetting it and actually start thinking about it and remembering it, when you, when you get this identity piece, you instantly get the purpose piece. And, and here's the purpose that he gives you. He says that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the light. You might proclaim the excellencies of God. That, that's purpose. And, and he gives two, maybe two ways for you to think about how this proclamation happens. How we talk about, how we speak about God. One is with our life. <clears throat> you see that in verse 12. You see it down there? That, that you're to live honorable lives. This is the picture. You're to live lives that make the gospel look good. You're to live lives that actually make the gospel look believable. See, here's the purpose of good works in our life. That people would see through our good works to a glorious God that saves people. That's the purpose. That your, that your works, your life is meant to adorn the gospel to make it look even more beautiful, more believable, more authentic. That your life is meant to do that. That the way you speak is meant to do that. The way you forgive is meant to do that. The way your marriage works is meant to do that. The way you parent is meant to do that. The way you work, your work ethic is meant to do that. Your life is meant to adorn the gospel. So, so maybe you could think of it this way, that your life, it, it builds a stage for you on which you can get up and proclaim the gospel. See, some of us, our lives are so cruddy that we actually kind of tear the stage away so we can't even get up and speak the gospel. I mean, it seems like a joke when we do it. See, when, when our lives are honorable, we actually build this stage on which we can get on and say, this is the great work of God that you're seeing here. This is what God has done. and This is what God is doing. He actually does this thing of rescuing out of darkness and delivering into light. So, so he's saying that, that your life, that's a way of proclaiming the gospel. And, and then it's going to be your lips. The gospel is a message. It contains words. That, that means that the gospel can never be fully understood just by you living a good life. The gospel can never be understood as long as you're being a good parent, being a good um, dad, being a good uh, you know, mom, being a good workman. It, it, can, it can be displayed there, it can be adorned there, but it can never be fully understood there. It, it's, it's a message. It's got words that have to be spoken. Like, people have to, to hear spoken or read. God has sent his son Jesus to live a a perfect life in place of your imperfect life, dying undeserved death in place of your deserved death, buried, rose from the dead on the third day. They have to hear that spoken. 
They need to put their faith and trust in Jesus. That's got to be spoken. That can't be seen in your life. Your life can adorn that message, but that is a message that has to be spoke to people in your neighborhood. Has to be spoke to people at your workplace. Has to be spoke to friends that you know that do not know Jesus. That message has to be spoken. So we, we ask four questions around here that I, I think will help just kind of give you some, a, a grip of where are you on this? Like, are you a person that is proclaiming the gospel? Like, is this happening? Are you proclaiming the excellencies of God? Four, four questions go like this. Number one, they all build on each other. So we're starting at the top and kind of working down the building blocks. Number one, has God used your life and lips over the last year for the salvation of another person? Your, your life and lips. And this, this is typically where it gets pretty quiet in a room like this, right? And, and so I think statistics say that like 95% of Christians, that, that's a no-go. Okay, so let's go next question. Over the last six months to a year, have you been in gospel conversation with the person that doesn't know Jesus? Typically gets pretty quiet there too. Number three, are, are you having across the dinner table sort of relationships with, with people who don't know Jesus? Like when I say across the dinner table, I'm not talking like, well, I shook their hand once. I'm talking about, I know their life. They know my life. They see my life. I see their life. Like that across the dinner table in your house, you're in their house sort of a relationship. See, if we don't have that sort of relationship with people who don't know Jesus, we're probably not going to be getting into conversations with people who don't know Jesus, and we're probably not going to see God save a person through our life. Okay, one more question for you. Bottom line question. Are you consistently praying as a family for people that don't know Jesus? So like passionately, consistently Pray, praying for those people in your neighborhood, in your workplace, your friends that you know are far from God. You know they are not Christians. I mean, is that happening for us? See, if we'll start praying for people, get that on the radar, then we'll probably start having them into our home. Then we can start having gospel conversations and then we can use our life and lips to actually see God, God save a person. I mean, are, are we aware of the fact that God is doing this stuff? I mean, he's like today rescuing people out of darkness into light. Like we just saw these incredible pictures of baptisms. What would it be like if you got to baptize somebody this next year in your neighborhood, at your workplace, the, the people that play like on the same little club that your, your kids play? What would it be like if you got that opportunity, right? And, and Peter's saying this, if we forget who we are, this is the danger of forgetting. If we forget who we are and what we have in Jesus, then mission will always be missing. Then the, the seductive whispers of sin will, will be so much easier to say yes to. Then if we forget our identity, who we are, then, then all of these things, the purposes of God, they, they never make it on the back end. So, so may we be a people who remember, amen? And, and let me just read this to you one last time just to remind you. Verse nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Listen to this, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. May it be, amen. Let's pray. It's one of my greatest um, privileges and honors to be able to stand before a group of people and just weekly give reminders of who you are. That if you're a Christian in the room, you, you have trusted and treasured Jesus, surrendered your life to him and savoring him. If that's you, then, then this is what you are. You, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Can, can you hear God whisper that to you? Man, I pray that you can. I pray that the Spirit is just resonating that in your heart, driving that deeply into who you are. So when you think about you, that, that those sort of words come out of you.
Amen. Just, just want to pray for you that when, when that identity is firm in us, we're living in that, that then mission follows. Then God starts to use our life and lips for the salvation of other people. And listen, with those four questions, if you answered no to those, that is sin. That, that's not like, uh, well, it's, it's not, that, that's sin that needs to be repented of. So if mission is not on our radar, God's not using us for that. We're not involved in the mission of God, praying for lost people, praying for people that don't know Jesus, having sort of relationships that bring them over into our life. If that's not happening, that's sin to be repented of. So I I can't help but think that there's a lot of us who, who as we kind of close up and finish today, maybe need to get on our knees before God and thank him for the forgiveness and the grace that covers things like this and, and ask him that he would empower these sort of things in our life, that, that we would be involved in his mission on planet earth. And for those that don't know Jesus in the room, this is a beautiful invitation for, for you to trust in him, to treasure him so, so that you will be this chosen race, this holy priesthood, this, this nation this people for his own possession. So, so may it be today. God, we love you. And God, I, I pray for the Stonegate family. God, that, that we would be marked by this identity and we would live in this identity that, that you've given us here. All that we are and all that we have because of the work of Jesus for us. So, so God, will you, will you drive that deep? And God, God, will you drive that so deep that it moves us to mission that we can't help but proclaim the excellencies of your goodness to us. It's in your great name that we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.